Hello, and welcome to the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club podcast, the place where curiosity is welcomed and no topic is too taboo to tread. I'm your host, Jonathan Doe, and today I'm sitting here over Skype with Scott Philip Gergens, the director of 29 Needles. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. I think we're going to have a good conversation. Yeah, likewise. It's it's nice to be able to do that over a few time zones. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so your film 29 Needles has got re- got released recently, and it's made a really big splash within the extreme cinema underground, uh, going so far as um, Stephen Byro of Unearthed Films saying it's the most disturbing film he's ever seen before. And so I was wondering, as someone who's made a film of this type, um, what is your kind of your history of first discovering that you had an interest in extreme cinema? Um, I... I uh... That's a good question. I don't know specifically um, what drew me to make this film. Um, I can say that um, from my viewing, um, I I hadn't really explored a lot of extreme cinema, um, and I didn't realize how much was truly out there. I had seen um, a lot of uh, what might what some people might consider mainstream extreme. Um, and uh, growing up, I was exposed to some stuff that was really interesting that you, you know, you kind of find um, uh, as you explore a little bit, um, like the traces of death, faces of death type stuff. I've always been um, uh, a person that gravitates towards um, uh, fiction in, that, in the cinema. And um, so it's not really of interest to me if it's... Um, unless it's a documentary about something, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, anything that's like real. Um, so, uh, there was, uh, um, like the martyrs film, the French martyrs, uh, that, that was a great film and, um, and growing up like, you know, Hellraiser for its time. And still I think is, was pretty, um, uh, amazing, uh, what they, what they achieved with that film. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I would say that, um, and I would still consider that, like, I mean, that's mainstream kind of stuff, uh, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there that I didn't really peel back so many layers until I started really um, getting to the um, the distribution stage of this film. So I wasn't exposed to a lot, um, and I just wanted to create something that I thought um, uh, was really um, an interesting uh, topic and subject to me, and I know that um, uh, what uh, would appeal to a, a, a section of people, uh, maybe not all, but uh, I felt I felt like there was an audience somewhere. Um, but I do know that when I finished making it, um, I've told other people that I felt like I've made an unwatchable film. Uh, I was like, "What have I done here?" But I did what I wanted to do, and that was the big thing. Is like I just set out to do what I wanted to do, um, and uh, hopefully that it would find its audience seems to have done that. So, well, that's really interesting. I mean, you kind of discovering the underground community more after you, you made the film. Um, so what were some of the inspirations that, that put you in the direction of wanting to be a filmmaker and specifically coming up with a concept for 29 needles? Um, I, I traveled around a lot, um, in the past, uh, couple decades. And, um, my husband's uh, career in the Coast Guard had us traveling a lot. So I kind of just thought, um, for the most part, 
I want to be able to do things my way instead of having to do things um, maybe through the means of the, the typical system for filmmaking. Um, so I was inspired by um, uh, filmmakers that kind of just go forward and just do it and they don't. Uh, so I was like, okay, I don't have any money and I don't have a crew and I don't have this, but I have a desire to make a film. Um, I have a, an idea that I could, um, so I, I moved around with concepts of what I could do on very small budget and with no crew, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and then I came up with this story, which um, I created uh, based upon uh, my fascination um, of what, really creates um, a serial killer um, and uh, from the perspective of um, what what really psychologically creates that type of person um, and not in regards to I think it's really cool um, it's more of like an interesting topic to me the psychology behind it and um, and then uh, I was exposed um, to a lot of people and bondage domination S&M community and I just thought there's some parallels here and uh, there's some really interesting um, concepts where um, at least for a serial killer I think that there's definitely like psychological issues obviously but uh, I think that there's a need and a gratification that's being filled for whatever reason Um, and then there's the people that um, deal with self-harm to release their um, at least feel alive somehow so they they create inflict pain on themselves and i just played and toyed with all these ideas and connected them and i just came across this character study concept of um it really following this central character that really um is tormented by his own desires um and and then and then um i just thought okay um i can do this i can do that um and if I can't find the right talent, um, I can possibly um, just use my camera work and editing to make a story out of it. But I was lucky to come across some wonderful talent for the film to really bring the dialogue to life. So that's where it came about. It was just like, I want to do this. I got this. <laughs> I, got, I have the equipment. Um, I worked for. Um, I had one. I made films when I was a teenager. Um, uh, like fun stuff, little things that we all did in camera editing, mm-hmm. um, and just like goofy horror comedies. Um, and, uh, and then I worked for, um, uh, production rental company, um, mm-hmm. in Boston when I lived there. And before I left, I bought my own camera and tripod and, um, some equipment. Cause I was like, I know I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna make a film, um, with this stuff. So I, I did. I just used myself and a camera and a tripod <laughs> and 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 just tried to make it look like more than one camera was being used. So we shot multi- the same scene multiple angles uh, times and tried to use static shots to create a voyeuristic look. Um, and there was um, one time period where I brought in another person um, with a camera and lighting to really help out with um, capturing a lot of... Um, 
a lot of stuff in the warehouse scenes because um, there was a lot going on and we just had to capture as much as we could because that was just live it was ha- actually just all happening so we just had to capture whatever we could yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um kind of talking a little bit more about um kind of like the bdsm and and serial killer aspects of the film um it's my understanding that the name 29 needles comes from um some some really interesting information about serial killer albert fish and so i was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit more on that um for people listening who may not be aware and then i'll move on to my next question yeah yeah um so albert fish was um i think uh America's first uh, serial killer, and uh, he went down in infamy for his monstrous actions towards children. Um, And I think that um, what really was interesting to me is his uh, religious skew on what he did, and he just felt like if what he was doing was wrong, that God would stop him. Um, and part of this was, um, which was really interesting because, um, I think that religion, um, is, uh, something that draws me towards, um, some horrific things, uh, um, in regards to what people do in the name of God, um, or gods or whatever. Um, and he, um, when he was captured, I guess that part of his, part of his thing also was self-harm and, uh. So he would um, put needles into his groin, and when he was um, x-rayed after being captured, um, they found that there were 29 needles um, still embedded in him. And that's where I got the title from. Um, And uh, so it was more of um, a subtle hint towards Albert Fish, but not the movie obviously is not about Albert Fish uh, specifically, except for the name. Yeah. Is that why you kind of incorporated like kind of like needle play stuff with Brooke Berry's character in the film? Is that, yeah. Yeah. I wanted there to be more than just the title of the film. I wanted there to be some needle play and, um, uh, yeah. Um, although it looks like, um, there's actual needle play happening. It's all tricks of the camera. (laughs) Um, because he was wanting to do it and I'm I'm like, I don't, I, I don't, I, I sought the advice of a medical professional to see what there could possibly be. Um, if anything can be done, they're like, you're not going to want to do any of that. Um, <laughs> there, this is a, so, um, although Brooke, uh, tried on camera to do some of that, we, um, nipped that in the bud, yeah. um, and made it look like it was just happening. Um, although, although it wasn't so, <laughs> Well, kind of diving into the BDSM in the film, um, uh, did you get interested in that community after doing your research with Albert Fish and serial killers, or did you already have a presence in that community before you were researching for the film? Um, Well, I'm certainly not a part of that community in regards to that isn't um, a pleasure for me in any aspect. Uh, personally, but I I have um, been friends with many people who it is, and I um, when I moved to San Francisco in '93 um, and lived out there for a while, um, I met a lot of people that were really into that scene, and um, and some of um, one of the friends, um, him and his uh, husband owned a torture dungeon 
um, that people would come from all over the world to um, stay in. And uh, we, it was really, I think that experience was really an inspiration point for some of the development of that character. And there was going to be more in 29 Needles that hinted towards um, that um, being the starting point for uh, Francis's character. Uh, but I ended up cutting out some of the script um, just due to logistics of filming and time and who I could get to commit to a project that kind of just strung along for a period of time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like as we've already kind of discussed, the film contains uh, a variety of explicit and often unsimulated scenes of people engaging in sex and all, a whole variety of different kinks. And I was wondering what the casting process was in finding talent to participate in those scenes for the film. Uh, that casting process was very um, interesting and grueling at the same time. Uh, I, I had flyers. I had um, personal ads in the uh, um, free papers, um, sought uh, people on social media um, and Craigslist, and even um, scoured and created fake accounts on hookup sites um, to find people. Um, and a, a lot of times that my, the accounts would get deleted because they're like, this isn't for looking for people for that. It's for, you know, hooking up, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so those, those, so when I finally got a collection of people, I started interview process and I figured that all these people um, might say they, so that was where it started. I, I wanted to find people that would be willing to do some of this stuff with for free um, uh, and not have an issue with it. Um, and I figured I'd find those people that it was maybe a maybe a turn on for them to be filmed doing some of this stuff um, or just wanting to be in a movie and they didn't care what they did. Um, and then when you collect all those people and then you um, whittled down through an interview pr process and uh, I would go and meet with each person and um, and if they would be willing to at least show up in an interview then that's a good sign mm -hmm. um, that means they might show up for the day of filming um, it isn't always the case um, but it's a weeding out process you know you people that don't show up for an interview I'm obviously not gonna show up for day of filming um, but even if you show up for an interview it doesn't mean that that's the case so I think that probably we got to about um, 20% of people that were interviewed um, were willing to be doing something in real, for real time. Um, and uh, then of those um, people, I kind of see, was seeing who possibly had the chops to deliver lines. Uh, so there was um, an audition process for that. Um, and I was uh, really blown away by the star's um, willingness and uh, performance. Um, and uh, Brooke uh, really was a find through a friend of a friend um, uh, from MySpace, because it was, it was a little while back <laughs> <laughs> that I found Brooke uh, when you were looking. Um, and uh, so that casting process lasted a while, because 
it was a lot of just digging and digging for people that are willing to do this um, for free and um, over, who knows, a period of months, because um, we didn't really have a shooting schedule. We just shot when we could. Yeah. Yeah. So what was uh, this this interview kind of uh, casting process like? Were you basically just re- reaching out pretty broadly and saying, hey, is there if there's anybody who's interested, it has specific fetishes, um, come if you're interested in being a fil- in a film, uh, contact me. Were you like meeting people? Were you were you being exposed to fetishes you'd never heard of before and things like that during that process? Um. I would say for the most part, no. Um, there were definitely like a lot of people that had baby fetishes and things like that, like meaning they wanted to be an adult baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I had heard of most of them, except for there was one uh, that was really interesting to me and um, not interesting to me in that way, but I just had never heard of it. And I think that it was a guy that um, would meet people in a turn on for him was um having them have uncontrollable diarrhea (laughs) um and so they would he said that he would go to restaurants and when they were not looking he would put like visine or something in their food or something he would say that would cause them to quickly pretty much they would be in public and and shit their pants um, because they couldn't make it out. And I said, that's a new one. That's really horrible as well. But that was, I was like, we're not going to really do that in the movie. But yeah, <laughs> so um, he was one of them that never showed up um, because I guess that um, we weren't going to be doing that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a new one. So you kind of mentioned already that you started really shooting the film uh, pretty early on back in the MySpace days. I think in the, in the director's commentary I was watching, uh, you said 2005 or 2006, and it didn't really stop until 2009 or 2010. And I was wondering uh, what factors made the production take that long. And um, uh, yeah, what, what, what were some of the challenges you faced and, and what was it that ultimately made you be like, okay, I'm done, I'm done shooting this film? Um, well, so it started, I think it was the casting process really began around 2005. We really didn't get things kind of rolling until 2006. And then, um, uh, so like filming began, I think it was a three year process to 2009, um, in regards to all that. And, um, um, I would say the one thing that really had us dragged out the most in regards to, um, filming production, was the um, effects and um, uh, there were we were treading new territory with some of the effects that we were doing um, I had a volunteer team that um, were trying to do something really unique and new mm-hmm. um, with animatronics um, and uh, large-scale uh, practical effects and um, there was a lot of like figuring things out so um, some of that we were shooting during the creation of that. And I had to work on a volunteer um, timeline. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have been able to receive their time and efforts. Um, so 
you know, I paid for materials, um, but I kind of, if there was, if they were unavailable or unable to do this or, you know, then we had to work on that. So that's what drugs some stuff out. And then um, I think that people's commitment um, changed over time. Um, so I had to um, change some characters, combine some characters um, and um, delete some characters so we could uh, get to the point. And then I think that there was finally a stage where in my head, I knew I had deleted this and I had switched this out and um, without really producing dailies or anything like that, um, I had an idea that I had enough to edit um, a complete film, even though it wasn't what was fully scripted. Um, so that was when I was like, okay, this is just ending now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is ending. We got to start the post-production process. <laughs> so that's, that's the, what drug it out and what, um, really, um, and I think that if memory serves me well, that the final scene was one of the early scenes in the film. It was one of the first scenes. So, yeah. Um, Weird how that yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was that's a that's a stretch to make a movie, but I'm glad that you managed to pull the whole thing off. Um, I'm sure that it had its ups and downs, especially with things being on a voluntary basis. Um, I'm really interested to know how you got in contact with Brooke Berry because I think their performance in the film is is phenomenal. And there's so many aspects of the film that really um, make the film stand out, but I think that their performance was exceptional. And so I was wondering how you found them and um, got them involved in the project. Uh, so Brooke was, um, when I was putting out uh, notices, or I, I had... I forget exactly the wording and I probably could find it somewhere, but, um, I basically would just say that I'm filming, um, a, uh, and I said an X rated horror film and looking for people willing to do whatever, um, within the, those, you know, constraints of a film, um, and, um, looking for all kinds of talent, um, all shapes and sizes that kind of was like a general thing that went out um, on different platforms. And Brooke was a friend of a friend on MySpace and contacted me. Hey, I heard you're um, making this film. I don't know if you can use me at all, but I'm interested. Um, and uh, said, great. So that was where the interview process started. Um, and then quickly in the interview process, I realized without even um, auditioning Brooke, um, that Brooke was, um, a great, uh, had a great look and was a great person for a role in the film, um, hopefully a speaking role. And then quickly, cause, uh, Brooke was initially being thought of, um, in, when I, when I, um, after talking to Brooke, um, for the role of Hans, um, and after I sat on it for about 24 hours, I said um, that Brooke has to be Francis. And um, and then we tried some lines and it was certain. Um, I Brooke had never acted before mm -hmm. and hasn't really acted since. Um, uh, Brooke was waiting on the release of this movie to um, catapult uh, an acting career. 
and um, uh, it's unfortunate because I think that Brooke would have really um, done well in other roles. I wish that Brooke wouldn't have waited, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was um, it was wonderful. Um, it was a wonderful find, and I don't know what type of film I would have had without Brooke's involvement. They did yeah. a great job. I mean, yeah. Um, another aspect of the film that I think really stands out is it's just a variety of different locations. Um, I think you've, you've picked some amazing locations, many of which are beautiful, many of which are kind of grimy. Um, and I was wondering what was the location scouting like for the film? And then specifically, what was, did you face any challenges shooting? There's a lot of scenes where there's people walking around outside naked and, as a filmmaker who's shot similar content, that's one of the biggest challenges that I face is trying to pull it off. And usually you have to do it illegally. Um, so I was wondering kind of what was that process like for you? Well, um, a lot of, um, a lot of the outdoor nudity, um, the ones that you actually can see, okay, there's, there's full nudity there. Mm -hmm. um, that was on private property. Uh, so that was easy because it was private property and it was shielded from neighbors. Um, so there wasn't much of an issue there. Um, uh, just the owner of the home was like, I just don't want to be here when you're filming. Just let me know <laughs> and uh, you can do whatever you want. And, you know, so um, that was um, the, the interior of Francis's house. Um, the exterior, when you see exterior shots, that's a different house completely than what the interior is. Um, but uh, that was in the exterior was um, in a suburban location. Uh, but some of the other shots like um, that might appear that there's nudity, um, there wasn't. Um, there, it was like um, a figure without a shirt on, um, but they had pants on. So that's a little bit easier to pull off. Um, like, okay, yeah, but we were, there were, it was all guerrilla filming, um, and I had no permits, and, um, and there was one point in time where I was stopped by, um, some people and, uh, asked about that, because I was on public property, um, and they, and I just said, hey, I'm, I'm shooting, um, it's just like a student project, and they're like, oh, okay, cool, um, uh, if you need other locations, just contact us. Um, so that was cool, uh, because I really wasn't doing anything that looked horrific then, um, uh, in those scenes, but, um, for the most part, um, like for the interior shots, I was really lucky to know people that owned these businesses and were allowing us to shoot inside of, um, their bar or their club or their restaurant. Um, and that was their property. So it didn't matter. So the exterior shots was even either a private property or it was guerrilla filmmaking where we just kind of ran in and shot and ran away before <laughs> anybody could tell, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, there was one shot where, um, one of these, um, masked figures is putting, um, something in a tree. Um, uh, and, um, that was right up from a hiking trail. And so there were people walking along the hiking trail and I was shooting to make it look like, this is like, okay, take your shirt off. And we framed it. So it looked like he was, you know, you know, like he was in all the other shots. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure that was really, 
um, a site for some of the hikers, but <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was, it was fun, you know? Well, yeah. it looks amazing. Um, kind of continuing with the, the locations of the film, it's my understanding that 29 Needles shares a scene location which was also used in the shit-eating grin scene in Pink Flamingos. And I was wondering, um, how did you, how did that happen? And uh, was it intentional or was it something that you just, you, it was just kind of a coincidence? Um, it actually was a coincidence because um, the, the house that he goes into, that Francis goes into, um, is where we were actually shooting the interior of that scene. So we just did it and shot it. And then, um, uh, so um, that was John Waters' um, film, and the dog in that scene was Pat Moran's. And um, Pat Moran's um, John's famous uh, uh, casting director and star of some of his, or not star, but um, an actress in some of his films. Um, and Pat's a neighbor of mine. And when I showed her some of the, um, uh, some the, I think it was, just some of the shots, uh, nothing like, you know, outrageous from the film, but she's like, that's right around the corner where I lived. And that's right where my dog took the shit that divine ate. <laughs> like, that's right there. And so I, I pieced it all together afterwards and it was, so it was a total coincidence. Um, but it was, it was a, a great coincidence because it, it's, um, it's a wonderful connection. Yeah, that's got to be a cool feeling that you have a film that shares a kind of a relationship with John Waters, especially Pink Flamingos of all films, you know? That's really awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you fit, let's get into like post, kind of post-production. Um, I, I think I remember you saying that by the time you were done filming, you had 25 hours of footage captured for the film. And uh, what was that like? I'm sure that was a daunting task to get through, trying to weed that down to a 90-minute feature it was and i had never um worked on a project um in uh digital editing um like that before um that size that scale i had played around with a little bit of stuff and i learned um how to use uh final cut pro and um, um so i i edited on that uh but that was basically the transfer of all that footage into a digital format because it was on digital tapes. So I had to add it to a um, external hard drive and then just filter through, uh, at least I knew that, okay, well, all these um, just external scenes that were designed for either cutaways or uh, like of um, highways or bridges. Um, and although that scouting happened, um, just because I knew the area well, and I've always liked some of that imagery and it's places that I had driven around or seen. So uh, those were easy and I would just lump them together. So I knew it was like, okay, well, this is where I'm going to go for all that type of footage. And then, then I just lumped, started, um, going through scene by scene and, uh, collecting those pieces together when we had retakes and reshoots and, um, and then different angles. Um, and, and then as it just pieced together, I just went chronologically. I think that that's the way it mostly would. Um, and, um, it, it seemed to go quicker than I thought, but I think my first, my first, um, unusable cut was about two and a half, hours 
Um, no, it might have been longer. It might have been like three hours. Um, uh, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to use that, like that length, because I was like, okay, nobody's going to sit through this movie longer than 90 minutes. Um, so I, just, I, I needed to bring it down. But that was like, this is the feel, and this is where I'm going. And then it was about paring it down and, and making um, uh, editorial decisions uh, for content and length and... Um, and I think it worked out. I, I did have to cut some stuff in ways that disappointed me um, for time, um, but uh, I, I think it it worked out fine. It didn't hinder anything, obviously. But um, that was it was it was quite a process. And then through that, um, I created a lot of um, sounds that I wanted, like. When um, when the mask figures would come, mm-hmm. I um, I created those sounds through other clips uh, and distortions and overlays, um, just based upon kind of an idea that I, just a mood that I wanted to create, and then I gave that to my sound designer and uh, the guy that scored the film, um, Andrew Willis, um, and we worked on changing that up a bit and removing stuff that didn't really fit right so um that process stretched on too but yeah it was that was the editing part was a long process and um uh fixing the audio which is what andrew did because i was a one-person team and i am not a um a sound guy and it was obvious from the final results <laughs> that he had to fix that I am not a sound guy yeah. um, and it was all like um, in camera mics so I had to be a one person team and I definitely learned a lot of things from making it so how long was that process like uh, getting the audio fixed like not including the score or anything just fixing the audio that was recorded on the camera years <laughs> yeah years yeah because he was working on volunteer time too, and he's he makes a living um, uh, scoring films, scoring documentaries. Um, so he was doing it on his free time. So I was like, I left it up to that, you know, and it it all worked out well because when it was all complete, it felt like it was the right time to um, give it to people. And it worked out. Yeah, on the Unearth Films Blu-ray, there's like a whole big behind-the-scenes or the making-of segment, and Andrew Willis goes into like the process of scoring the film, which is really interesting because the score is fantastic and really like I kind of pulls the whole film together. Um, but outside of the score, you also have songs from various bands, and I was wondering how you got those tracks and got in contact with those bands for the for those songs for the film. Certainly. Um, so early on, I. Um... I had the idea that it would, you know, I'm a, I'm a big music person and I had some friends um, that were actually in the movie and had two songs in the movie from Red This Ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they um, were more than willing to help out and blend their songs. Um, some of the other, um, I knew musicians from being in Baltimore, so some of those tracks I used as well. Uh, but the rest of them, I just con- contacted them and um, 
back in the MySpace days, it was like easy to contact bands and people, the social media um, was new and people were connecting. So I was connecting with real musicians and um, I had a, a friend that um, introduced me to the band Adult and, um, and I really liked their music so I, I met them and they were actually originally going to score the film. Um, but um, their life got in the way, the project delayed and or extended, and um, they were willing and um, loved having a song in the movie, um, but um, they didn't end up scoring it, and I was happy that Andrew did. But uh, um, the, all the other bands just were willing to let their music be in the movie, and I just, just by asking them, and um, they were willing to give it. And like Tara Von Flower from um, uh, Licia, Licia, I always mispronounce that. Um, but um, uh, she was early on and has been a big supporter of um, allowing me to use her song, um, Skeleton Horror, which um, was great because that wasn't attached to any label. It was just a, a passion um, piece that she had done. So just little bits like that, just reaching out and asking people. Yeah, that's something that I really like. I mean, I really am in, I, I just like independent art in general. And so it's cool to see people from different mediums kind of like cross over and kind of like um, collab with each other. And I mean, your films, your films getting a lot of attention. And I'm sure in uh, by proxy, that's giving those artists a lot of attention too. you know, people go, oh, that song was really cool. I'm gonna check it out. And I, just I think do that's hope cool. yeah. I do hope that I do know that other people have um, mentioned that and asked about where you can get some of the tracks. So um, and I'm like, here it is, it right <laughs> online, do it. Yeah. It'd be cool to come out with like a, I don't know, like a soundtrack on, I don't know, on vinyl or something like that. Maybe at some I point. I think it would be cool. And I thought about that, but I also don't know how that would work out with, I mean, it possibly might not be an issue, but I'm not sure how that would work out with so many bands from different, like pulling from different areas, how that would how that would work out. Yeah. Logistically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, another aspect of the film is is its practical effects. Um, I don't want to get into specifics about anything, but um, the film's pretty pretty effects heavy, and I was wondering how did you get involved with the effects team, and um, what was the process like in making all of the different things necessary for the film. Um. So in part of the process of me advertising for talent for the movie, um, Willie Richardson contacted me and um, said, so you're making a film. Um, uh, do you have a makeup person? Uh, not a makeup person, but an FX person. Mm -hmm. And I said, no. And he's like, oh, well, I kind of, I can do, I do, I do that kind of stuff. Um, and so I talked to him and I went to his house and went over, he showed me what he had done and uh, went over um, what the movie was to see if I could sell him on working for free. And he really liked the story idea and liked the challenge of creating something like some of the things that he did in the film. Um, so he got on board and then he needed assistance. Um, so um, we, pulled together different people and eventually Victor Accord um, became uh, Willie's apprentice and um, um, they worked out stuff with 
Willie's skills and knowledge and um, ingenuity um, through mold making and um, just uh, experimentation um, for a lot of different things. Um, it was uh, Willie actually, um, not that this is a big prop, but he will always tell you that his claim to fame is the Virgin Mary doll in Pecker. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, that was an interesting connection, another connection <laughs> to John. I mean, uh, being a Baltimore filmmaker, you're going you're gonna to come across that a lot. But uh, um, yeah, so I mean, that's how it came to be. And it just, there's a, a Baltimore Eagle bar. Um, and I got to know um, the owner a little bit, and he let us use a, an adjacent warehouse space um, to just, that was empty to, um, to work on the effects in uh, for a large period of time. Um, so, and we ended up filming in the Eagle as well, um, but that was great. So they had that space, but yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, one other effects question I have is uh, with a specific scene with Brooke Berry and Fingers, and you guys almost had kind of a medical emergency with that, which yeah. sounds terrifying <laughs> as a director for that to happen. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate more about, about that whole thing, because that's, that's a crazy situation to be in. Yeah, I'm uh, so... Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's such a it was such a bizarre scene um so there's a character named barbie um and uh in the movie um she's dolly like salvador dolly because i named the characters after surrealist painters um so um it's like this dream sequence um so it's very dreamy and um Barbie and uh, Francis are um, Dolly and Francis are interacting um, and um, there's fake fingers that um, end up um, Brooke inserted in himself. Um, I say himself because Brooke was a man at the time, but um, for, for the role of Francis. Um, but um, they they got fused in there from the lubricant that Brooke was using that interacted with the, um, um, the latex uh, that was used in the fingers. So they got stuck. And um, we were very concerned about how to get them out. Um, and it took a while. There was a lot of um, sweat and tears, but luckily no blood. So, wow. um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a little... Like, how are we going to talk this one through? <laughs> luckily, luckily, it all flushed out in the end. Was there panic on set during there that time? There was panic. <laughs> there, was, there was sweat. There was, because um, um, when it came time for the scene, it was like, okay, nothing's happening. Nothing's nothing's happening to what should be happening. And, uh, and I mean, it was funny. <laughs> but not funny at the same time. And it's like, oh, oh my God, what are we going to do? So I think it took about 30 minutes of um, uh, flushing. Mm -hmm. And um, Brooke uh, manipulating to um, really start unfusing them. So When they came yeah. out, was it just like a big 
clump of melted fingers or they didn't melt but they were it was kind of a clump um <laughs> and uh i would say that um uh yeah they kind of came out all in one big blob wow yeah <laughs> yeah so luckily not all of them ended up in there so we we're able to use the other fingers that didn't fuse into um and and use for um the actual scene um and do that quickly so wow yeah well moving into the film being completed and done uh, you started doing kind of the festival circuit and i was wondering what that process was like with a film as explicit as 29 needles um was it difficult? Were you getting a lot of reje reje uh, rejections from people? Were you worried about any kind of obscenity laws or anything like that with trying to find the film to be shared anywhere? I probably should have been worried, um, but uh, I went in with blinders, uh, really. I knew, okay, Film Freeway was a great way, was a, a way to um, submit. Um, and I found that out because my goal was to really be a part of the Maryland Film Festival, which is a great film festival, um, and it's right in my neighborhood. Um, and um, so I found out how to submit through them, and they go, they they allow submissions through Film Freeway. So I created an account, uploaded it, and then I just started searching for other festivals. And I just, I think I put it out there to a lot of festivals up front, a lot of the ones that are um, well-known, and then I started digging into festivals that um, were more genre specific. Um, and then I just thought, um, and then I also got feedback of what the best way to do it. And I, so I would um, submit each one with the, with the submission letter, um, uh, email, uh, digital letter um, through Film Freeway to give a little bit of um, just personalization to it and why I thought that it would work. Um, but there were, as most filmmakers get, tons of rejections. And most of them just came with a not selected and no answer, which I understand, um, not just from my film's perspective, but from a, um, uh, you know, a, the director of a film festival's perspective. So, you know, you just can't personalize each rejection you know just it, sometimes it doesn't fit sometimes it's just as wrong sometimes just too many submissions whatever so i never really took it personally except for i think that there was just some minor disappointment um some of the feedback i got i got from um just people wanting to know a little bit more about what i was trying to depict um uh and um and then out of the blue um, Jason Tostevin um, from Nightmares Film Festival emails me. Um, I think it was like August of 19 um, and um, and just said uh, just asked me um, I think it was something like um, has this film been in any other festivals yet? Um, what would the status be? And I said um, and then he gave me a selection um, regional premiere, world premiere, whatever. And I said, well, world premiere, if it doesn't get selected. So, um, the next thing I know it was selected and I'm like, oh my God, my first <laughs> festival, Nightmares Film Festival. That's wonderful. And then, um, 
and then during that process, it was wonderful because he has created quite a community um, through the For the Nightmares Film Festival. And then I, the movie got selected for two awards. Uh, one of them was Best Lead for Brooke, and one of them um, was, I think it was Best Midnight Feature. That's what it was. Um, and then um, and then I got, uh, in the meantime, it was not selected for Sick and Wrong Film Festival, but I got a great quote from the director for Sick and Wrong, um, and uh, Stephen Stoll. And he later kind of was like, I'm kicking myself for not selecting it. So he selected it the next year. Um, and it, that was during COVID, and it couldn't air because of um, legality um, from the the distributor was like, you know, you can't, we can't have this online for people to watch, even though there's lots of ways to prevent piracy. It was, I get it. Mm -hmm. um, so COVID really messed up some of the stuff. I mean, it was going to be overseas in one festival and, um, and then it couldn't because it was going to be streaming platform. And then, um, but right before um, COVID really took its grasp on America, um, it was in Atlanta, Georgia, um, at um, Day of the Dead Film Festival. So um, all those people really like appreciated it, understood it, um, and uh, for the most part, I I got great reaction from people, and I didn't get a lot of negative anything, you know. So that's awesome. I think I think a lot of people didn't accept it because they legally couldn't <laughs> you know still have it screened in the in the theater and then other people even said with nightmares with jason it's like i don't know how you swung having this on a screen in a actual theater you know so yeah but he did so and it ended up winning best of the festival at nightmares right that was a huge uh, surprise yes um because i wasn't even aware that there was that award so after we didn't get either of those two. Um, it was quite a shock um, to receive the final um, award that was given. And uh, um, it was wonderful. And it really helped catapult um, uh, the movie into um, distribution, I think. Yeah. Well, from the concept being developed in 2005 uh, and, and the long trek of this whole project up until 2019 and ultimately getting released through unearthed films and the positive reception it's had. How does that feel that it's all kind of come to this? It feels really wonderful. <laughs> um, and it's, it really does because, um, it was me just trusting myself and, and, um, an audience to find it and all of it happened. Um, and I just, I just put a lot of air in between stuff, allowing time to do what he needed to do to make it happen. And it all, it all worked out. So, um, it's, it feels really, really good. That's yeah. awesome. And it's exciting and it's really exciting to work on another one. <laughs> um, so gearing things up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so changing gears a little bit, uh, you also were featured in Jesse Seitz and Marcus Cook's uh, documentary, Beyond Horror. And I was wondering how you got in, in connection with them and what it was like being a part of that documentary and being a part of all that. Uh, so 
it was wonderful being a part of it. And um, I actually, um, they were at Nightmares Film Festival when um, 29 Needles was there. So they saw 29 Needles um, and, uh, or they got to see it. Um, but we, we met through that process and they knew that they had this kind of like um, theatrical run cut of their their documentary, mm-hmm. and they were going to expand upon it for um, the um, Blu-ray DVD release, and so they were going to pull in more, um, and that was part of that process. So um, that process came from Nightmares Film Festival as well, um, and they were wonderful to work with. Um, uh, so it was a lot of fun doing that, and that, that there was that documentary seeing the light of day was um a lot of trial for them too because i don't know if you are aware that a lot of the footage was lost and they had to redo um because of computer like hard drive issues so he had an initial one and then had to redo it um yeah i think it got fried from a lightning storm or something like that yeah yeah i'm glad that it's finally the the indiegogo blu-rays have been shipped out and uh it, I've seen I've seen the documentary. It's really cool. And it's just kind of a cool showcasing yeah. of all the different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I keep it on my desk. It's like inspiration. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's great. So, kind of my last question is, uh, what are your plans for the future? Do you got any projects that you're got lined up or anything that we can look forward to? Um. Well, I'm a artist, um, and I am putting a lot of effort into current projects um, artistically um, through my painting. Um, and I own a gallery too, so there's that. Um, that's pulling a lot of my time right now, but um, I have written a script that I want to shoot, and I've been toying around with the idea of doing a short, even though I was never really that um, motivated to do a short. So I don't know if it'll happen or not, um, but I really like the script that I've written um, for my next feature, um, but I really want to get out of the grip of COVID before I worry about going forward on that. Um, I could probably start now in a lot of different aspects to kind of move forward without getting to that stage, but I also don't want to um, repeat some of the lengthy production um, that I did in the past, and I want to definitely have paid crew with a proper schedule and um, <laughs> with a decent budget and you know all that. So that'll be a little bit of time develop to develop, but um, it's going to be sooner than later. So yeah, it's going to be a fun one of um, instead of it being like a character study this time, it's more of a um, um, a study of a collection of people and um, what they go through as a group um, in um, in a, a retreat kind of situation, like a wellness kind of retreat. So that's cool. Yeah. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, COVID is definitely putting some roadblocks into making any kind of films right now, but hopefully things clear up quicker than later. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I don't want. I don't want. I feel like um, who knows what's going to happen with uh, cinema, but um, because of COVID, 
but you've seen stuff being produced and people aren't out there in uh, I, I feel like the look of a mask on camera isn't going to translate well in 10 years it'll feel very dated so i wouldn't want to work under that so you kind of have to quarantine the entire crew for a period of time and isolate so in order to do that um and the type of movie i have which is um explicit again mm -hmm. um but not as explicit as swinging the needles um you i wouldn't you want everybody to be safe and that's uh you know yeah definitely wait so well do you have any uh final thoughts you'd like to say to your fans or anything you'd like to plug before we come to a close um no plugging but i certainly um really greatly appreciate every fan of the film and um a lot of uh what 29 needles has achieved is because of the fans out there so i thank them and uh appreciate them so much awesome well i enjoyed our conversation thanks for taking time to spend it with me and uh i hope you have a good rest of the day man thank you thank you very much <laughs> i had a great time thanks bye bye-bye thank you for listening to this episode of the uneasy terrain explorers club if you're interested in checking out my other work please subscribe to my youtube channel cinemas underbelly where I analyze and review obscure, obscene, and controversial cinema, as well as check out my label, Putrid Productions. Until next time, this is the Uneasy Terrain Explorers Club. <laughs>